Hi, I'm Abby. And I'm Jess. And you're listening to Did the Reading Pod, the podcast where we did the reading, so you don't have to. Uh, what are we talking about today, Jessica? We're doing our first poem. So oh we are talking about How by Allen Ginsberg. Stunning. And um, why did we pick this? I can't remember if I suggested this or you did, but why? I was just why... about to say the same thing. I think it was reasonably collaborative. <laughs> collaborative um, choice. Well, we're always looking to expand our repertoire and we thought it'd be fun to do a poem to just like full stop and this is you know might as well go in at the deep end this is quite mm. the poem quite the poem quite the I think poem also, to begin with the, the the thing that had sort of re-put alan ginsburg on my um radar, radar. this week <laughs> was uh i i was reading something and it had um america in it which is also i think in this collection but it was a super interesting thing to kind of think about the other stuff he'd done and then to kind of do a bit of a deep dive which is sort of how my week has been a kind of beats deep dive i'm sorry well that's who i am now so yeah that was kind of how i felt that i could agree emotionally to doing hell this week (laughs) well like most things i was like oh this came up at some point in my university lifestyle yeah, yeah but again as with most things it was kind of like a, a whistle stop tour what was the context of it it was in my american revolutions module yeah i remember very good but it was, it was just one of those things where i was like haven't done like an in-depth american literature thing for a while especially with obviously like the beats context i feel like you do sometimes just have to like know a lot more than you can kind of fit into a two-hour I think it's super interesting but I think as I say I'd like literally never done any beat stuff I like American literature but I hadn't ever studied it so it was kind of interesting not least because it's you know one of those like terms that always gets um bandied around a lot like you know beat Uh, generation (laughs) well you know me and my me and my squad but then I think as well like it kind of weirded me out that it was like oh yeah they're calling themselves the beat generation it's like five of your friends it's like us, like coming up with an idea and then deciding that we've like started a literary revolution. You've got to you? admire the the power of it. You um, certainly have that. <laughs> it is, <laughs> we were having this the audacity. And it's like when you realise that this person's friends with this person. Yeah, because this was my this. like absolute best fact, as we were discussing yesterday, that Carl Solomon, who's the guy who this poem is dedicated to was the guy who published William Burroughs' Junkie, which, you know, doesn't say a lot for his judgment because that is quite a boring book. But, yeah, I thought it was crazy to read that. It's like, God, you guys are all just doing your own thing. <laughs> and I actually, as well, I watched um, Kill Your Darlings last night. Oh, yes. I know. I did the prep, which I thought was actually quite good. But I thought for a film, which was about, you know, some crazy happenings, it wasn't that crazy it felt quite slow well for starters i'm sad that my recommendation to watch it has only borne fruit now that it's required for a podcast episode but well exactly i don't i read the review and then i um dump all the suggestions apart from the relevant ones for the podcast (laughs) (laughs) just the rest of it i'm like i no longer care we will definitely come back to that though because that's honestly my prime kind of like contextual reference for this poem (laughs) So I think the thing with this poem is it's it's all over the place. And especially if you're not 
which I count myself in, like a regular poetry reader, it's quite a lot mm. to deal with. Mm. But I think if we try and like break it down as much as possible so that there's at least some sort of understanding of our later discussion, then it will mm-hmm. be useful for our listeners. Okay, so how is a poem in three parts plus a footnote? Um, and so the first section is him kind of talking about the impact of capitalism on the individual. And throughout, he's sort of talking about the challenge of the fact that as a, in inverted commas, brilliant mind, you are necessarily estranged from the mainstream. And so we go through this whole first section, which is talking about the best minds of the generation being seen outside of this society and feeling constantly cut off. And there's a consistent chiming of the anaphoric repetition of who but each line is also supposed to represent one single breath. So there's kind of supposed to be this kind of gasping rhythm to it, which he was very interested in how do we restructure the poem? How do we reformulate the idea of structure and form? Which, you know, you can learn a little bit more about in uh, the academic essay, Kill Your Darlings. Anyway, carries on like so. And basically what is really interesting about particularly this first section is it's really heavily weighted with lots of references to come his friends and their realities. So the whole thing, I suppose, is also creates a level of exclusivity where we're supposed to recognize that we can't be the brilliant mind within the poem because we don't understand all the references he's generated. And then part two, we move on. The second one uh, addresses Moloch, who is a figure from the Bible, who I believe the Canaanites were sacrificing children too. But in this, Moloch is capitalism. But you didn't see that coming in. And it's actually because um, Ginsburg had a vision of like a hotel as Moloch and kind of consuming things. Anyway, so then this whole thing again goes through and it's like, God, life is a nightmare. Lots of exclamation points. I, I I won't explain that better than that. It is what it is. And then the final section is actually for Carl Solomon, even though the whole section is for Carl Solomon. And it is about Carl Solomon, who is the <laughs> one who he met at a psychiatric institution. And it's sort of saying he is both recognising the struggle Carl Solomon had as an individual and showing a kind of affinity and allegiance with him while also uh, kind of inserting into the figure of Carl Solomon, his own mother, who also um, suffered with her mental health throughout her life. And he kind of conflates the characters and it becomes both a sort of apology to his mother and a kind of sense of understanding growing into that. And again, we get this refrain of I'm with you in Rockland. So throughout the poem, there are these kind of very repetitious moments. So it feels quite chiming. And that is where we get the sort of structure and form in a poem, which is otherwise structureless. Mm -hmm. What do we feel, Jessica? No, this is all far kind of outdoing my expectations so far. Um, (laughs) Thank you. No, I'm just like, like an offer. Just kind of like a trajectory of my own kind of like capability to summarize this poem. There's then a footnote to yeah, the whole know. poem mm-hmm. where, again, he loves a 
kind of refrain or like start the lines of the poem with the same word which in this instance is holy and again mm. we've got a lot of exclamation points like everything is holy and I think it well some people have suggested haven't they that it's kind of inversion of that like um Moloch part two where we're kind of supposed to see some sort of hope in the footnote a kind of that kind of escapism from capitalism because quite a lot of it uh, with him seeing brilliance as an escape and I suppose maybe in that footnote we see brilliance illustrated both as the kind of academic knowing of a footnote and the kind of escape from the capitalist body of the work which is what is being sold I guess Hmm. I hadn't thought of that as in like the whole thing I think it is an inversion of that middle bit but I think the impetus of it is the same it's interesting it's actually what's the publication history of as in when did it come out in comparison to the actual poem see that's an interesting question let me give it a cheeky goog oh god because I was just thinking what were you thinking in terms of like editorially it's probably interesting to be like oh a footnote he's published it had this reaction and then now has written this but then for it to still be a similar kind of like middle finger to America in my very literary opinion is interesting I think because you have got this like ostensibly so I think here what they're saying is that Ginsburg wrote part two in the footnote after there was an agreement to publish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know because we don't have that first copy. But I think that is an interesting uh, thing that, you know, the readers, if they enjoy research, can also do. Let us know. Let us know. Let us know in the comments. We'd love when to get, we get one. When we get a one larger slash A budget, we can hire a research assistant. <laughs> it's like just start hiring like unpaid interns for our like. Absolutely not. Podcast. Um. Right. I'm sorry. Uh. Not even a joke. I'm willing to make. Do we have any other structural thoughts? What do you think about this kind of idea of the single breath line? And what about the points in the first section where he begins to break it, where we lose that who, and we kind of move into a longer section? For example, the bit, I won't read it for very long because um, I love not getting done for copyright violation, but the line beginning, and who were given instead the concrete void of insulin metrazole. I conceptually until I for some reason might be made to like read this out loud in front of people I'm a fan of the one breath rhythm approach I think as we said before it is something about like that kind of physicality in performance where it requiring so much you are kind of in a way made to sort of suffer through the poem it does incite with you as you like said there that kind of like anticipation that kind of um, anxiety about producing it which in a way makes you feel the poem more strongly I guess. Yeah, because also he wrote or said, didn't he? He was basically like, oh, I. He more or less went to his journals or his prose writing, picked out some bits where he was like, oh, that's good, and then (laughs) made it a poem. Mm -hmm. As in the idea of trying to. I don't think he was purposefully like, oh, I'm going to try and dissolve some boundaries between poetry and prose, but I I think it does have impact, not least because it's first person, it's very oratorical. For sure. Yes. But. It does certainly make for some stressful reading. One last thing. Oh, well, I wish you would. Like, oh, it starts to like break down. Mm. I don't know if it. I feel like that's just where it like stretches the most. 
Well, I think there's moments where it kind of like ranges out, sort of can tell us something more, because even if we consider the other bits, it's kind of quite like metrical in inverted commas for those bits to break out. Like it kind of tells us something more if he's sort of unable to maintain Particularly, I found like this part here with the returning years later, truly bald, except for a wig of blood and tears and fingers. I mean, like, it's just a really powerful line. And to kind of break free from it, you do feel as well that you're you're also becoming that person returning back, I guess. Yeah, because you've also like, got unfitting. to, Because like, you're forced to almost skim over it and you're on the next line before you've even registered those really kind of, like, complex, harrowing images that you've already had to, like, move on from for the sake of, like, taking a breath. For sure, yeah. That's all I have to say. So, for our second discussion point, we were thinking and we've like spoken a little bit about this about the idea of intertextuality as in we've already spoken about the fact that this is very heavy with reference and personal experience Mm. to the point where it's like a little bit impenetrable in places Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we know that I mean do you want to tell us about things like he loved some was it Blake and Whitman and all of these things so we get that kind of those Blake references throughout so there is this kind of even in the editorial history a covering over of some of the original intentions and because I think of the way in which it's been received over the years particularly in the fact that we have lots of letters about it we have lots of diaries about it um and there are other people who've written sort of responsive works um there is so much of it where the poem itself um becomes intertextual becomes layered And we're kind of um, not only forced to see what is the kind of intended true poem, but to wade through how important it is to kind of digest that intertextuality within the poem in order to receive it. Like, are we supposed to just read it and think, well, that was like arresting. And those kind of images are, are sort of collaging of personal experience that we're supposed to just accept as personal experience. Or are we supposed to understand those images for what they are? So, for example, I'd kind of wondered about, like, the potato salad image that comes up in part three. And I think Carl Solomon actually wrote a letter to him and sort of said, well, you don't get it because potato salad was, it was actually a Dardarus joke where I was chucking potato salad at this Dardarus lecturer and I was like, oh my God, how crazy is that? And then everyone accused him of being crazy. And I think there are kind of a few of those where, is it important to get the reference? And in the same way, kind of working in the Blake and Whitman, is that part of building him into, particularly in Whitman's regard, a kind of um, free-flowing, unlimited, um, again, like gay writer's tradition? Mm -hmm. Or is it about just speaking to his own personal love of Whitman and of Blake particularly? I don't know. Yeah, I, I ask a lot of well, questions without giving any information. <laughs> Maybe go into politics. Anyway, I think the main thing that I get from the... I think a lot of it is just, like, personal admiration for and interest in those previous kind of, like you say, like, distinctly American, distinctly kind of anti-tradition mm. poets. Mm. 
Was it Blake that was like, poetry is a spontaneous overflow of feeling, or was that Wordsworth? Oh, God. It was well, a romantic Blake's poet. poem was not that spontaneous, also. <laughs> Abby, you need to tone down the William Blake hate. My, like, least favourite thing is he wrote... No, it was Wordsworth. Right, Blake wrote this line where he where he rhymes something with ha ha he and he's like the children laugh ha ha he to make the rhyme work and like I could never ever forget that's the moment that. she lost respect I was like not only is songs of innocence an experience bad objectively but ha ha he just write ha 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 and then let people work it out like <laughs> We're going to move swiftly on, not least because in this context, Blake is a very important poet that really even appeared in a vision to Ginsburg. So we need to forget what What was the vision? I love the vision stories. He was, where was he? He just like appeared to Ginsburg and I think he was just reading his poetry like in his room or something. And he was like, I heard a voice and I, and there was no doubt about it. I'm definitely misquoting from his like diaries or something. And there was no doubt about it that it was just like the voice of Blake. And then they, like, <laughs> you know how you talk because <laughs> Blake went, hi. <laughs> you know, what? moving on. What would you, Abigail, I'm going to turn this question back on you. What would you compare oh. this poem to? Okay. Well, um, stunning question my first sort of thought when I had been reading it was it really reminds me of Last Exit to Brooklyn by Hubert Salvi Jr mm-hmm. which have you read it no I just said mm-hmm, as like a tell me more <laughs> it's very supportive of you <laughs> rather than um, like a, oh yes well it's a series of um, short stories but I want to use the word vignettes so I'll use the word vignettes about kind of the experiences of people who are struggling in New York. And so what's really interesting about this and that book is that both of them kind of contend with, you know, like both what people can do to one another and what are the consequences of kind of a kind of capitalist drive overriding individual's experience or individual happiness, individual opportunity. Um, while also kind of placing them in a very specifically New York landscape and kind of dealing with that kind of collaging of experience and constant melding of experience. And there's also, he kind of gets very similarly into, there are like elements of stream of consciousness in this and in Hubert Selby Jr.'s book. Also had an obscenity trial. And it's really interesting because the book that I read it from um was in the union library and it's got like a little sticker in the front and it's like you couldn't get this book anywhere we got it in like 1965 and we got it imported in because we believe in freedom of speech here at the union it was like it was really cool anyway i thought it was interesting i really like that thank you what about you what do you think well my initial thought was i'm going to cheat slightly we when we (laughs) were looking at this (laughs) at uni we looked at it in the same seminar as we looked at Diane de Prima's poetry. Have you read any of her stuff? No. So we were talking about how female writers can or arguably cannot be aligned with like the beat mm-hmm. generation, beat 
group and sure. her poetry is like amazing it covers this like a similar I think it is beat writing in terms of it's very anti-capitalist and it kind of does that very clever individual experience as universal issue but is very very rooted in individual yeah. working class stories mm. um my favorite is one called the practice of magical evocation mm-hmm. and it has like a gary snyder bit at the beginning i can't remember the fucking name for it and because she like writes back to him where he mm. says the female is fertile and discipline brackets contra naturum only confuses her and then right. like the first stanza is i'm gonna read it okay <laughs> I am a woman and my poems are women's easy to say this and like the whole thing is insane and then there's a bit there's like another collection which she does which is called like Brass Furnace Going Out yeah which I think the subtitle is like song after an abortion anyway mm. I would suggest to anyone to read these I think they're fantastic poems and I think that in the context of like writing which is very it's focused on struggle and individual experience I think it would just be interesting to then think about like who can write those stories and who has those claims to a universal voice for sure and I think it is interesting because kind of my first feelings when looking at this poem have been kind of looking at it in conversation with both the other beats so stuff like William Burroughs's Junkie and then I had sort of thought also of things like um Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and as I said, The Last Exit of Brooklyn, which are all male writers. And it's kind of like, are we just looking at that kind of occupation of a space which is going to be archetypically male? Or mm-hmm. is it just that our kind of canonical knowledge is necessarily, well, not necessarily, but has been typically quite patriarchal, preventing yeah. us from knowing more about other women doing similar things? Because the other the other thing, actually, I, I lie to you, the other person I'd wanted about talking about it was like stuff like the in-your-face theatre stuff of the 90s, stuff like Sarah Kane. Oh, yeah. That had been my other thought, because things like um, Crave, Blast, those kind of things, mm. looking at stuff that's very visceral as a like invitation into discussing wider issues I'm gonna say it's blast which deals with the issue of kind of war and our relationship with it through that kind of personal experience of harassment I think it is yeah because I mean I think that it's an interesting play I have kind of dealt with it relatively reductively um but I think also what's interesting about it is that they both contend with that kind of performance history of the way in which they actually exist in space being more controversial than the kind of poem itself I guess yeah yeah no that makes sense because I think there is like a general attitude to the beats especially in contemporary as in like 21st century criticism where it's kind of like oh there's an extent to which they were just kind of like the boys a bunch of white men yeah, oh, yeah true. um but I don't think that's to I mean we've both agree that Junkie isn't like a gripping read but I think that doesn't do you know what I mean like I'm not saying the beats are useless that's kind of you to allow them to continue to exist as famous writers you're like Jack Kerouac um maybe you're on the road was a fun little self-publishing project however (laughs) I promise my view isn't like entirely based on the Kill Your Darlings screenplay honestly like quite intriguing I feel like the whole thing is so 
I honestly loved it because when I first thought of like things to compare to, I was like, why is the secret history coming up? I was like, the secret history is coming up because it has the same kind of like vibe as Kill Your Darlings. Do they also both have Daniel Radcliffe in or am I making that up? I feel, I didn't know the secret history had a film adaptation. Right, let's give this a cheeky Google. I'm going to need you to stop saying that. Oh no, I was thinking of the other one. Oh, the goldfinch. It really flopped. Okay, so I now have a couple of fun quotations to slightly... Oh, my God. That's another soundbite. In some attempt to replace our, like, usual Goodreads segment. So I have one from Allen Ginsberg's father. When he first wrote the poem, he sent a copy to his mum and his dad. Mm. And I think the reply that he got from his mother was, like, the last thing she ever wrote. She died the same day. Oh, wow. Yeah, I want to really sad. look into like his biography more. I feel like yeah. that would be interesting. Anyway, I'm already getting off topic. She's already distracted. I want to get a copy of his diary. That I don't be... know if it's published, like not just like a legally like, it. I'm just going to get my hands on it. Okay, yeah, sorry, carry on. Um, anyway, so in a letter replying to him, his father said, it's a wild, rhapsodic, explosive outpouring with good figures of speech. Just for context, he was also a poet. Mm. I still insist, however, there is no need for dirty, ugly words as they will entangle you unnecessarily in trouble. Well, he wasn't wrong, was he? No, see, I picked this because I thought that would that's like an interesting context thing. But then also like the idea of like what makes this poem radical and why was there such an outrage about it? I feel like in a lot of ways, if Alan had been worried enough about reaction, about trouble, then that would have defeated the entire point of the poem. Like if he had written the poem and then been like, oh no, but I'll take this out because it might have got negative reaction, then he's not very radical and he can't write this poem. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I also was thinking, do you think there are fewer barriers to publishing something radical in the form of poetry versus in the form of a novel? Um, um, mm, I'm not sure. I think there have always been methods of distributing radical material. Um, and I think maybe if there was the kind of opacity of metaphor or whatever, I think there are definitely opportunities to be radical in that sense. But I think to produce content of this kind in any way, you would sort of struggle to do it regardless. But I think also lots of people had sort of said that the kind of copy that came out was very portable, very accessible for, in regards to like money yeah. and stuff, which in a way like does make it riskier for the publishing industry because if it's it's not the kind of thing where you have to secretly read it at home, you could be reading it on the bus because it's light and little. Yeah, I think it was like a kind of almost a five size it was like 40 pages mm. just like stapled together that's so fun of him isn't it no because the other thing i was thinking of is when he talks about what did he say dirty ugly words like mm. a lot of the, the prosecution case at the like obscenity trial was this isn't appropriate for children to read and mm. that was like in some bizarre turn of events the benchmark that was being used to decide whether it should be banned or not mm. And I don't know, I just thought that was... A bizarre way of commenting, because there's plenty of things that aren't appropriate for children that aren't inappropriate. Yeah, so I think it was after this trial, they then decided that it was, it should, the benchmark should be, like, the average adult, I think was the phrase they used, rather than 
a child. That's interesting, actually. Yeah, in terms of, um, I yeah, I don't know. I just find the concept of like policing literature and being like, oh, imagine what this would do. Baffling. I think I sort of I appreciate from his perspective as well, though, that as a writing poet, you often the way to achieve mainstream commercial success um, is to produce poetry that anyone could read. Because I think even while Ginsburg is recognisable and popular today, he's in a kind of subsect. It's not like he is um, churning out ha ha he's. Um, For example. Par exemple. Naming no names. <laughs> Naming no names. But... You know, I think there's plenty of poetry that kind of persists just by virtue of pushing the envelope on what's appropriate. It's just whether or not that's the kind of poet you want to be. And I think his father didn't fancy that. But I don't think yeah, I would have sent this poem to my parents and been like, yeah. <laughs> what do you fancy? Like, Yeah, his father had his poems were published in like columns of a famous newspaper that I now can't remember the name of. That's very tasteful. But yeah, that's the point. It was tasteful. Um, I think the the way he phrases it well when he's like, there's no need for it, mm. I think is quite crucial in terms of it's the idea of he's kind of there like, oh, I see what you're doing, but like, you can just turn it down a little. You don't need to yeah. be so sweary. And Do you like, think he could achieve the same thing without swear words? Um. No, because I think a lot of the impact of it, especially contemporarily, I've just made up a word, speaking, was purely shock factor. But then um, I think you could still have shock factor and talk about the subjects you're talking about. Because, like, to talk about sex in those terms, like, as he did, you know, or talking about taking drugs or talking explicitly about the realities of, of vulnerability, of, you know, all those kind of things would still be radical regardless. However, I do agree, as you say, that sense of falling apart that the poem is trying to convey like the sense of everything kind of dissolving or wouldn't be conveyed if it was you know following very strictly within kind of what yeah. is or isn't appropriate linguistically because I think in every element of it it's acting or trying to not just break out of but like shatter the kind of like sanitized 1950s that mm -hmm. it is coming into mm. in terms of form content the mm. lot Mm -hmm. I couldn't think of any other things. <laughs> Poem vibes. Poem vibes. The quote is from. Oh my god! I've like I can't read my own writing. Mark Schoer. Okay. Who was a professor of English at the University of California, mm. and he was a witness for the defence in the obscenity trial, which it sounds like I'm obsessed with. I do just think this bit is like very fascinating, mm. and the judge got him to like read bits out and then be like what does this mean what do you think of this and then his response at one point was so you can't translate poetry into prose that's why it's poetry and so mm. I wrote this down partly just to be like what do you think of that because I thought it was quite a poetic thing to say in a way it's it's but like me being the guy, like person transcribing like oh stunning <laughs> Because I also just think in such like a complex poem, there is an element of you could go through it, which a lot of like kind of spark note type websites do. And line by line, they're like, this is referring to this and it means this. He's saying this. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a super, like we spoke about this a little bit earlier. But I just don't know if that's like a super beneficial way to approach it. But then I'm also not yep. sure what the other way to do is. But like, yeah, any of what I just said, feel free okay. to 
Well, I mean, I think the thing is, like, it is interesting as well, draw the boundaries that strictly, I think, particularly with a poem like this, which is kind of prosy, to kind of be like, oh, well, it, it can't be prose. I suppose, like, more what it's dealing with is, like, you can't translate poetics, because I think it is an overall impact, isn't it, where we're kind of getting this cumulative effect of these really emotive moments in kind of conversation with one another and particularly to kind of deal with one specific line and say what does that mean yeah if it was if it was about one specific line they would be isolated do you know what I mean or they would be dealt with in single kind of poems in themselves what they're meant to do is kind of like grow together to give us a sense of you know this like emotional experience (laughs) I think I think the there are even bits in the trial where they were like oh why didn't he use this word why does he use this word they were like (laughs) it's like my my uh tutors looking at my essays when they make no sense (laughs) it's true they're like oh why have you made up this word here but yeah because I think like you say it is that as we noticed when we were like, ah, oh, basically drawing straws on who was going to try and summarise it. The whole thing <laughs> is, it's not a case of being like, oh, and then he talks about this. And then yeah. the speaker moves to this section of New York and he talks about this. It's literally yeah. like flashes of experience where, not least because it's all in one breath. Mm. They're just, it's like so concentrated and it is just, like you say, it's a poetics. I loved that point. Mm. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. I think... There is something interesting to be said in terms of like how to read this poem. Yes. In terms of, we've already touched on the fact that it's like relatively inaccessible. Like genuinely some bits of it, I was like having flashbacks to having to read Paradise Lost and like (laughs) needing a Google search for like every phrase. Mm. But I think a bit like when we were talking about modernism, you kind of just need to like lean into it a bit and experience it holistically without sounding too pretentious here no I think Alan would love that oh that's very heartwarming but yes I think it is worth kind of not panicking when (laughs) you're like what does this mean because I think it is like obviously like fantastic poetry and the whole thing with especially a poem of this length is you get the experience and not necessarily like the understanding which I don't think is necessarily even the point I don't think it's meant to be a GCSE text, and that's okay. Well, Jessica, it was delightful to speak to you. I wish you wouldn't use my full name. Perhaps you would like to tell our millions of ardent listeners where they can find us on social media. You can follow us at Did the Reading Pod on Instagram uh, and the same on Twitter. And you can always drop us an email at didthereadingpod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. See you next week. Bye.